You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Revelation chapter 5, this is where we began our journey with looking at the seven seals. As I shared with you, we're going to take just a few minutes today to look back and pull seven takeaways from the seven seals. I hope to do the same thing uh, as we move into... um, the trumpet judgments that we would go through, um, all seven of those, as well as the seven bowl judgments that we would take a a specific week to look back on them and try to pull seven takeaways from each one of those um, scenarios as well. So we hope to do that in the coming weeks. Uh, Revelation chapter 5 is where we will begin this morning. You noted on the sermon notes you picked up, there weren't uh, any blanks or anything. That's because I was just really short on time this week. Um, So I didn't mention it this morning, but um, to avoid grumbling and complaining, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Um, This last week's, these two weeks before school starts are always the busiest weeks of my year, probably. I look forward to school starting back at this point because I can get to a normal schedule. Um, I was probably at the school every day this week from about 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. And so it's just, it's it's a lot of, of work that has to be done. It'll be the same schedule this week. Um, so just pray for me if you think about it. Um, I'm really short on energy right now, and um, I'd kind of determined early in the week that um, it would be beneficial and helpful for me to look back over the things that we've been studying versus trying to move forward into new material. And so um, it was refreshing to me to kind of remind myself because, you know, again, for a lot of us, this is completely new territory, studying Revelation. I know I've heard from a lot of you, I've never studied this stuff before. This is all new you know, you've been a Christian for a long time, you've grown up in church, and, and revelation study has always been relegated to uh, a Sunday school class or a special Wednesday night study that you weren't a part of. And so for a lot of us, this is new material. It's, it's, it's really brand new material for me as we've been working through this verse by verse. I mean, it's a lot of new stuff for me that I'm having to wrestle through. And what I'm, what I'm finding for myself even is that because it's so new, if we don't go back and refresh ourselves, we're going to hear this stuff and it's going to be new and then we're going to forget it really quick because we don't have any history with Revelation to kind of bank these sermons into. I mean, we don't have a filing system in our brain where, oh yeah, I remember studying this book of the Bible before. That was a great sermon today. I can kind of remember some of those things because I've heard those verses before. For a lot of us, we've never read about the seven seals or we've never really studied them before. And so, I would encourage you to keep going back through our study and revelation, reminding yourself of the important things that we're seeing. Because like I said, I'm really trying to pull out the, the clear things that we can see in revelation, things that we can really take away and hang our hat on and find encouragement in, um, find application in. Um, but if we're not careful, we're going to forget a lot of this stuff. And um, it was refreshing to me this week to kind of look back through Revelation 5, 6, 7, and 8, things that we've been studying to remind myself there's some things that we have a, a responsibility to be doing um, in light of what we're learning in Revelation. So I want to share some of those things with you today. But before we do so, and I was going to do this in discussion group this morning, but I panicked at the last minute and felt like you guys may not uh, be able to draw upon a lot of things that we've been learning. And you may have um, kind of drawn a blank this morning, so I didn't want to put our discussion leaders in a bad spot where nobody had anything to share. So I'm going to kind of open it up right now to everybody. What are some key things that you feel like looking back on the seven seals, you're kind of taking away from our, our studies over the past several weeks? What are some key things that you feel like we've looked at in these chapters in Revelation 
um, that are meaningful to you, that have really kind of stood out to you, that, that you want to continue to meditate on as we move forward into the seven trumpets? Anything at all? I think the thing for me that's been just overwhelming is how everything points to like Christ being in control at every turn. I think you've just done a really great job of projecting that every week as we go through every seal, whether it be being in control of the horses that go out and destruction takes place or being in control of the 144,000 or those that are going to be um, adopted into the family. Um, I just think that's been such a really cool takeaway for me as I think through John writing this book for believers in that time. What does it mean? And I think you've been doing a great job of like, hey, the meaning here is like Christ is in control through all this, all of this. Um, whether it's happening then or happening now, Christ is in control. That's something that has been a great takeaway for me. Good. Good. And, and, and that truth so important on a daily basis. I mean, whether, you know, Elizabeth shared some of the challenges that Jessica's facing right now, things that she thought was happening with college that yesterday they found out aren't happening with college. To, to hear even Elizabeth talking to me this morning saying, we know God's in control, God's got different plans in store, but they're good plans, even though they're different than what we had planned. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this family that, that Rob and, and Rob have mentioned this morning, you know, they, they didn't expect to lose their son at such an early age. I mean, that's, that's a tragedy. That's devastating. And that reminds us of what we've even been talking about. There's coming a day when hunger and thirst and, and sickness and sorrow are gone. So even hearing situations like that, that ought to create a longing and desire in us for Jesus to come back so that we don't ever share stories like that again. Um, we had a, a teacher that had been at Trinity the last couple of years. She just moved over to East Coweta for this year. Um, but both of her parents were tragically killed in a car wreck going to a movie last weekend on a Saturday night pulling into the theater, and a guy runs the red light and kills them instantly. I mean, that's a tragic story. And, and, and I heard that right after preaching last Sunday, and immediately I'm thinking, man, I'm ready for Jesus to come back so we don't hear stories like that anymore, right? There's a coming a day when he'll wipe away every tear, and there's no more sorrow, no more sadness, and we long for that day. We look forward to that day. But leading up to that day, we know that Jesus is in control of every situation that we face. Other things that, that kind of stand out to you from the seven seals that we've been talking about? Yep. I'm not sure if this is so much the seals as it is just revelation in the picture of heaven in general, but what I always get is the constant, constant, constant praise and worship of God. And see, now it's going to make me cry because we don't live that way, but we should. Yep. If it's an ongoing thing, and we talked about that it can be an ongoing thing because we never exhaust reasons to praise him in eternity. It's an ongoing thing for eternity that we're, we're before him and we're worshiping him and not just singing songs. Remember, we talked about the fact that there's going to be service opportunities. We're going to be doing things that bring glory and honor to God that aren't tainted by sin. Other things that we've, we, we can take away that you remember from the seven seals before we even look at it together today. I haven't been here, but I know the word and what impacts me, I think, so much about Revelation in this particular passage and in this part is that Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to open those seals. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we just might um, forget his worthiness yeah. and he is the only one. Right. Absolutely. Anything else that kind of stands out to you? Um, 
the the seventh seal, um, the prayers of the saints going up into the bowl and everything like. Um, my prayer's been different uh, over the last couple weeks just because tying in like what Toby was saying, God's in control of everything. So rather than praying for specific things, you're praying for those things in light of like what Jesus is doing. So, And then also praying for my heart to go ahead and be ready for the promised hardships that we're going to face. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these truths that, that we're hearing found a way to pray differently. All right, let's look at Revelation chapter 5. Let's, these, are, these are all things that we're going we're gonna to pull out again together um, as we work through um, the seven seals. And, and for those of you that are visiting, you may be saying, what, what are we talking about here? What are, what, are, what are these seven seals? So Revelation chapter 5, um, we have a throne room scene. John, the disciple, has been given a vision of the future. And in a, in a part of that vision, what he sees is this scroll in heaven that supposedly contains all of God's plans for all of history. And this scroll is bound, it's, it's, it's wound up, it's tied up, and it's sealed. Um, and, and we don't know how history is supposed to end. We don't know how God's plans are to come to fruition until this scroll is, is unleashed, until it's open. And so there's this great scene in heaven where there's discussion as to how do we get this scroll open and who is worthy to open it. So in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The first thing that I want us to, well, summary sentence-wise, there are unanswered questions that remain about the seven seals, but there are specific truths that we must remember to guide us in application and to encourage us as we wait for their complete unveiling. So our summary sentence, we do this every week. This is basically the main point uh, that we're trying to, to unpack together, and that's what we're trying to do today. There's unanswered questions that remain. There's a lot of unanswered questions about these four horsemen. There's a lot of unanswered questions about when some of these things happen. But there are specific truths that we can remember that will guide us in applying the word to our life, encouraging us as we wait for all these questions to be answered. All right? Um, so number one, the first thing that I want us to take away from our seven seal study. First thing, we should long for the opening of the seven seals as they reflect the sovereign plans of God for this world and the world to come. We should long for this to happen. How do I know that? Because John, at the thought of these things not happening, it causes him great sorrow, right? 
The prospects of God's plans not happening causes John to cry out and to weep. He says, this has got to happen. Where, where is someone who is worthy to open this? And he's weeping in heaven because there's no one found to do so. The thought of the scroll remaining closed caused great sorrow for John. We should long for this to happen. Now think about what we're talking about longing to happen. What happens when these seals start opening? We talked about death and world conquest. We talked about famine, right? One of the seals opens up and there's famine that extends all over the earth. We're supposed to want that to happen. We're supposed to pray for that to happen. I mean, John is weeping over the idea that these things would not happen. Talked about the the, the fifth seal that opens up. Christians are being killed for their faith. John says, I want this to happen. This has got to happen. And that reminds us again of things we've already been sharing, that you've been sharing, that the Holy Spirit's reminding you of. These are God's plans. God is in control of these plans, and he is turning these plans for good purposes. And John says, I want these things to happen. Again, my history growing up studying the book of Revelation, I feared these things. I read Revelation and said, what a horrific time in history for these things to happen. I would never want to see these things happen John's crying out and saying, I can't imagine these things not happening. These things have to happen. This is part of God's plan. We should long for these things to happen. We should be encouraged by these things because they're part of God's sovereign plan for this world. The opening of these seals brings the gospel to a climax. The slain lamb is shown to be worthy of all glory. That leads us right into verse 6 of chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. So so Jesus has been found to be worthy, but why? Why is Jesus worthy? Because you were slain. Because by your blood, you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne, living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I mean, this is the climax of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to rescue us from our sin back into a state of fellowship with our Father. Jesus comes. He's the worthy lamb who does that, right? And it makes him worthy to carry out God's plans. So as this scene unfolds in heaven, Jesus rises to the top and he's the one who is worthy of our worship because he is the one who has already been carrying out God's plans. He came to rescue humanity for God's glory. Jesus alone, number two, is worthy of the worship 
of all creation. The second thing we can take away from our seven seal study is Jesus alone is worthy of the worship of all creation. He is the worthy divine victor. This passage here in Revelation 5 talks about his worthiness, what he has accomplished, the victory that he has won over death. And we see Jesus' divinity here because if you read chapter 4, we have a similar worship scene directed towards God the Father. And the same titles and the same glory is being given to God the Father that is now being given to Jesus in chapter 5. Jesus is a completely separate being than us, right? We talk about him being the son of God. We talk about him being a human being. We talk about him taking on flesh, but in no way is Jesus even close to being similar to us, right? Jesus is the son of God, but Jesus is God and he is worthy of our worship because he is divine, completely separate from his creation. Every creature owes everything to Jesus. He holds the fate of history in his hands. He takes this scroll from God the Father. He seizes it. And he begins to unfold the plans of God, and we are thankfully on the side of the one who is in control. Anna talked about the fact that this is, this is the scene that we're gonna, we need to get used to because this is what eternity looks like. This is us worshiping Jesus. Talked about the climax of the gospel. I highlighted for you um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, a couple of weeks ago, that scene where Paul says, I've devoted myself to the gospel so that the gospel goes forth so that more people are thankful to God. I shared that verse with our football team a couple of weeks ago for our team devotion. That this is my goal. My my desire for even coaching football right now is to increase the awareness of our football players to the glory of God. And that should be true for everything in our life. Everything that God gives us, every hobby, every family member, every neighborhood that we ever live in, It ought to be used to point people to the glory of God. I'm so thankful to have that opportunity at Trinity to work at a school where we have kids that come in from every type of background that we can point them to Jesus. I'm thankful to be able to to coach on a football team who is is led by an individual who has that same heart and desire. I I was reminded this morning as we're singing the second song this morning, 10,000 Reasons, we sang that song together as a football team Friday night before we took the field. Talk about, talk about an odd setting that, that doesn't make sense in the football culture. And, and our coach explained what we were going to do probably 10 times to our coaches as though, you know, you're, you're going you're, you're gonna to feel this is weird because you've probably never done this before. And I was excited about it. I was like, man, this is going to be awesome to direct our heart's attention to why we're even playing football. Right? We're playing football to the glory of God because he's gifted us and, and given us abilities to, to, to use those on the field to, to draw attention to Jesus and to, to build his name by having a successful football program that will attract other people to Trinity. And so we sang a group of 70 of us, because we got like 60 football players this year and, and almost 10 coaches. And so 70 of us are just in this tent about to take the football field and we're singing, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And it was such a, it was such a cool thing to, to, to be a part of because I'm thinking, And it's not just about worshiping Jesus in a Sunday service. It's a Friday night doing something that we love doing, and we're tying worship to Jesus into the midst of something that we love doing. In that time, I'm thinking, man, we got it right on this hire for our football coach because he is is building a program that is meant to point people to Jesus, and I'm thankful to be a part of it. And and I would invite you to look for ways to, to push people to worshiping Jesus outside of this setting, right? It's something that's supposed to be happening all the time in our life. 
He is worthy of our worship. He alone, nothing in creation deserves our attention. Nothing in creation deserves our love like Jesus does. Which moves us to number three. God controls and limits all of the evil to come in Revelation. That moves us into chapter six. So Jesus is worthy. He begins to unpack these uh, unpa- un- unlock the seals so that we can read the scroll. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Let me just stop right here for those that are visiting because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna miss what we've already talked about here. Every rider that comes out with authority has been given his authority. Every rider that comes out with a weapon has been given his weapon by Jesus. Jesus is using these figures to carry out his plans and his purposes, to bring about judgment on this earth. And so while it's, while it's evil forces and it's, horrific things. It's directed by God for his glory and for greater purposes. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. This represents famine. This represents famine. Famine's not a good thing, Right? Famage, a short, famine, a shortage of food, a shortage of, of clean water, results in death. People starve to death in famines. We serve a God who is greater than famines that uses famines for good purposes. Think back to the Old Testament in Genesis. Right? He allowed a famine to come on the scene to drive Jacob and his family to Egypt so that they could grow into the great nation of Israel and become the people that the Messiah would come through. They don't go to Egypt unless there's a famine. There's no reason to go to Egypt without the famine. The voice in the midst of these living creatures that is dictating the, the, the limits of the famine, it's Jesus. Because you back up and you find out the being that's in the midst of the four living creatures, it's Jesus. It's the lamb. Jesus is the one controlling the famine. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. You read that and you're like, death and Hades, who wants to mess with those two dudes, right? That's, that's scary. They're riding on a pale horse. What a creepy scene, right? And, and I told you, I was so thankful that our youth got to go to Snowbird this summer and see the Revelation skit and see these horses come riding out. And it's a horrific scene and it's supposed to look horrific. But the reminder in the Revelation is that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades, right? Death and Hades aren't scary on a, on a horse because Jesus holds the keys to those two, those two places, Jesus has all sovereign authority over them. These guys aren't meant to be scary. Jesus controls them. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Jesus isn't concerned as though something has gone wrong in his plan because Christians are dying here. These Christians are crying out, when's this going to stop? 
And Jesus said, it's not time for it to stop. Jesus doesn't respond and say, I'm working on it. I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out how to make this stop. Like, like I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going I'm to figure this out. Now, Jesus says, man, it's not time for it to stop yet. He gives them a white robe and tells them to rest a little longer until the number of the martyrs is complete. Jesus says, there's still more people that are going to die. There's still more Christians that are going to be persecuted for their faith and die before I put a stop to it. You say, why? Why would Jesus allow this to happen? Because I believe there's still people that are persecuting Christians that are meant to come to the other side. See, Jesus could step in and say, no more. I'm coming back, and this is the end of it. And the people that were persecuting the Christians would spend eternity in hell. But think about it. Paul writes in Philippians, and he says, hey, I'm in jail for being a Christian. And some of you would think, man, poor Paul. But Paul in Philippians 1, he says, this is a great thing because I'm interacting with people in jail, prisoners, jailers, and I'm telling them the gospel, and they would have never heard this before. There are people around the world that are being persecuted for their faith, and police and soldiers are hearing the gospel as these people die. And the goal and the hope is similar to what we see in Jesus' crucifixion when one of the guards says, truly, this was the Son of God. Like it, like, it, like it hits him in the aftermath. This, this is Jesus, but he's more than just a man. This is the son of God. Man, how cool to think that there are people that are persecuting and killing Christians that potentially in the aftermath of seeing someone who is willing to die, it dawns on them and says, man, what they believe must really be true. I gotta believe that there are people that are coming to Christ that have previously killed Christians because we have a history of it. Paul's a great example. Paul killed Christians. And imagine if Jesus had said, enough is enough, no more martyrs. And Jesus had gone to heaven and come like right back down in a couple of years because Paul was instituting this mass persecution of Christians. Paul would have been on the other side and Paul would be spending eternity in hell. Paul is one that could stand up and say, thank the Lord that he said, the number's not there yet. Otherwise, Paul doesn't get converted. Jesus says, it's not done yet. There are still people that are going to come to faith because of these deaths. He's in complete control here. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves. They're calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand in the midst of this horrific event of Jesus coming back? God controls and limits the evil here. God does come on the scene and God does bring justice at the appropriate time. He's sovereign over all the coming events. He empowers them to happen as we see him giving these things to the four horsemen. He restrains what happens in the future, right? The famine can only go so far and martyrs can only go so far. Jesus is not gonna let that go on forever. He limits what happens evil-wise. He uses good spiritual forces to prevent evil spiritual forces 
from acting too early so that believers from all corners of the earth can be sealed. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 7, right? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. God says, I'm not gonna bring judgment on this earth and I'm gonna hold it at bay to the four corners of the earth. No evil force can do anything without my permission and I will not unleash judgment on this earth until every believer is sealed. Until every believer comes to Christ, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I will not let it happen. And we've seen how cool it is. He talks about the four corners of the earth. That's where God's power extends to, right? All, everything. And that's important because in Matthew um, 24, it says that Jesus, when he comes back, he's gonna send angels to the four corners of the earth to collect his people because they come from everywhere. And God has held things back to the four corners of the earth so that everybody has a chance to be saved. Everyone comes to Christ that's supposed to. And then he collects them from the four corners of the earth. And how important it is that God spares us because in Revelation chapter um, 20, it says that the deception of the Antichrist and his forces will extend to the four corners of the earth. But not until every believer is sealed. Not until every believer is sealed. Remember, Jesus says the deception will be so great it would deceive even the elect if that were possible. But it's not. It's not possible for a Christian to be deceived by what's coming because they're going to be sealed. They're going to be protected. God controls and limits all the evil that's to come. We know this to be true because we see in verse 9 of chapter 7, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes. They got palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. You skip down to verse 13. The elder says, who are these people? And he responds to his own question and says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. What we typically think of as being this great time of deception, this great time of persecution, this great time for evil to rule and reign on this earth, it produces an amount of Christians that no one can number. God controls evil for his glory. God controls and limits evil to come. And here's the thing. When we fail to understand what God's doing, and there's going to be times Right? There's going to be times. Jessica may be asking the question, why is, my, why is my education not working out the way that I thought? This family is certainly waking up this morning with questions in their mind. Why is my child not here? The girl from Trinity who, who loses both of her parents is, is waking up continually this week even saying, why, why would this happen? How is God good in the midst of this? But, but the encouragement is the same encouragement that God gives to... Um, those martyrs before the throne or underneath the altar. But God can respond in encouragement to them because what are they doing? It says, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. They've got questions, but they're relying upon the things they do know about God. They say, we know your character. We know who you are. We know you're a good God. We know you have good plans. They're not doubting God. 
in their questioning. They're coming to God and they're saying, when will you act? When will you fix this? When will you do this? And it's appropriate. And God says, look, it's, it's coming. It will happen. It will come. There's great encouragement as we've studied these seven seals. God controls the evil. Number four, God shows great value to the church. I mean, don't miss this. As worthy as Jesus is and, and the attention is appropriately drawn to Jesus, don't miss the fact that the church has been given great value in these, in these chapters. Not because the church is worthy of the value. It's valuable because Jesus declares it valuable. The church is given great value in the seven seals, but only because Jesus determines the church is valuable. Man, God is protecting the church. God is providing for the church in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of evil. What we, I think, hopefully see is that the church is a key piece to God's end-time plans. Jesus has redeemed the church. He will avenge the church. And as we're going to talk about here in just a minute, he's going to do all of that in response to the prayers of the church. And God's doing all of this for his glory. He's redeeming people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He will judge those that have persecuted the church, and he will do it all in response to the church praying and asking him, to do so. Great value is being given to the church. God's protecting them until they're all sealed. Even when he shakes the earth and brings judgment, Hebrews 12 reminds us, we will not be shaken. Everything else around us may be shaking. We will not be shaken. As we see the cosmic signs in the sky, as we see Jesus coming back, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. And we're going to see some cool cosmic signs in the next couple of weeks when the, when the eclipse comes. And, and the more I read about this, the more crazy this sounds like it's going to be with, with everything aligning to where, I mean, everything I'm reading is that it's supposed to get like dark, like in the, like in the middle of the day, like almost nighttime dark for, for a brief time as the sun and the moon and, and the earth all pass together in such a way where, where it, uh, it aligns perfectly for that type of thing to happen. And Man, as, 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 as I'm reading this, like, I can't help but think, like, what a crazy day to see those cosmic signs and to know we don't ever have to fear anything that's pointing to the return of Jesus. This is a glorious thing to look forward to, a glorious thing to hope in. God shows great value to the church. He protects the church. He is watching over the church. He will redeem the church and avenge the church. Number five, missions must be a priority Let's not miss how important missions is to our end time study. As we come to verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God. God's going to save people from everywhere. Talking about the value of the church, the church gets to be a part of this. The church gets to be a part of this. God, God includes us in his plans. This, this great multitude's only here because of human evangelism, right? People from every tribe, nation, and tongue are saved because individuals decide to leave their families and their friends and their home and go places to take the gospel. 
Jesus doesn't change that plan. Jesus isn't going to send ghosts or, you know, ghosts of Old Testament prophets to go share the gospel. He's not going to send angels to go share the gospel. Even in the New Testament, um, when, when individuals didn't have the full gospel, God came to them in visions and told them to go talk to human beings about it, right? He doesn't give them the gospel through an angel. He says, go talk to Peter who can give you answers about the gospel. There's great value being given to the church here. God says, you're the ones that are going to collect people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to give me glory and honor. You're going to be the agent that I use to go share it. The Holy Spirit is going to be the supernatural element that rescues them from their sin to give me glory and honor. We get to be included in that plan. Missions has to be a priority for us because this is where eternity is headed. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We must be driven to missions not because we feel guilty for what we have, but out of a desire for the glory of the Lamb. He deserves worship from all corners of the earth. Right? We, don't, we don't need to go to the mission field because we feel sorry for people that don't have indoor plumbing like we do. We don't need to go to the mission field because we feel sorry for the things that we have and the things that they don't have. We shouldn't even go to the mission field simply because we don't want people to go to hell. We should be driven to the mission field because we desire to see more people bring worthy honor to our heavenly Lord, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Not just from 10,000 tribes, but from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Our, Our motivation for missions is a drive and a desire to seeing God receive glory and honor. We'll talk more about that next week, how we fit into that plan for missions. Number six, all of the effects of sin will be removed. All of the effects of sin will be removed. It says in verse 15 of chapter 7, They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They'll hunger no more, they'll thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember, all this stuff right here rooted in the Old Testament. This is promises given to Israel that's now being applied to the church. God says, I made promises to my people in the Old Testament. I'm still making the same promises. My people has just grown It's grown from not just Israel. It's grown to be every tribe, nation, and tongue. And you will all enjoy the benefits of what it looks like when I come back. You're going to get to work, and it's going to be good and fun and enjoyable and fulfilling because you're going to want to do it day and night. That's what it says. You're going to be wanting to work day and night. Whatever job you get get given in heaven, you're going to want to do it day and night, we're told here. And you're not going to hunger anymore. You're not going to thirst anymore. And while most of us have never experienced that, we're not going to have to worry about working to avoid hungering and thirsting. It's going to be gone. There's, not gonna be a th- there's no threat of it anymore. There's no more tears. God wipes away the sorrow to where we don't have to have times where we sit and share prayer requests that, that bring us to tears. We don't have to worry about it anymore. It's all done. It's all dealt with. It's all gone. All the effects of sin have been removed. All the God-haters are removed. Those guilty of persecuting us will be held accountable. The Bible says when the gospel goes forth, Mark 13, 10, when the gospel goes forth everywhere, and when all come to repentance that are supposed to, 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, 
when the last martyr dies, Revelation tells us, Jesus will come and bring justice to those that have caused so much hurt. The end will come at the appropriate time, and we are told to wait patiently for that. Vindication will come to God's people. True justice. Romans 12 talks about us not seeking vengeance because vengeance comes from the Lord, and it will come on that day when Jesus comes back. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 talks about the relief that comes to believers when Jesus comes back, when he reverses everything that's been wrong in our life and makes it right. And the practical application for us is that it, fights, it allows us to fight against the temptation to grumble and complain right now, to grumble and complain about our circumstances because we know there's coming a day when Jesus will deal with all of that discontentment. Which brings us to the last thing that I want to share with you. So we've seen we should long for these things to happen. It's part of God's plan. Jesus is worthy of our worship, and everything in our life should be done to bring him glory. God controls and limits all of evil, so we don't have to worry about any threat outside of us that, that, that would bring harm to us. Jesus controls all evil in this world. He shows great value to the church, so safest place to be is a part of the church and not in this building right? There's nothing safe about this building, but being a part of the spiritual church is the safest place you could be because great value was given to the church. God holds back judgment to protect the church. God seals the church. God watches over the church. Missions is a priority. It has to be. All the effects of sin are going to be removed. And then number seven, the end will come in response to prayer. We saw this last week, Revelation 8.1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God brings about judgment in response to the church praying. The church prays, and God responds with this judgment. Luke 18, 1 says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It can be discouraging to pray for things that never get answered or seemingly never get answered. I put in my notes as I was kind of reading back through this, are we willing to pray for things that won't be answered in our lifetime? Think about that for a second. We said that that God brings about these events. Jesus comes back in response to the prayers of the saints. These prayers are being gathered uh, figuratively in this golden bowl in heaven. And they're rising before God as this sacrifice on this altar. And and in response to them, the rest of Revelation starts to unfold. And we may or may not be on earth when that happens. We may be in heaven. And our prayer, we may actually see our prayers in heaven being answered by God as they come before him as this sweet aroma. Man, what, what a challenging thing to think. Would you be willing to pray for something that you were, you were guaranteed would not happen in your lifetime? Would we see any value in asking God to do something that he wouldn't do until 300 years after we were dead? Or would we say, ah, we'll leave that to the saints that are 300 years from now. They can pray for that. It's not going to affect me. I'll be in heaven with him. Man, we ought to be intentional to pray because Jesus says, don't, don't lose heart. Always pray and don't lose heart. 
Our prayers lead to God acting in judgment on the earth. He graciously calls us to participate in this. We said the multitude in heaven, that's a result of our evangelism. That's a result of us going and telling people about Jesus. The coming judgment, that's in response to human prayer. God gets glory by answering the prayers of his servants. Prayer is more, listen listen to this, and we'll close this statement. I'm going to give you um, our application, then we're done. Prayer is more powerful than any other earthly power we witness in Revelation. Think about that. Prayer is more powerful than any other earthly power that we witness in Revelation. Right? The, the power that the white horse rider has and the, and the black horse and the pale horse and the red horse, all these armies, Gog and Magog and, and all these people, the dragon, the, the, the Antichrist, all these people that are going to gather to bring war against Jesus and his people. None of their power compares to the power of prayer because when, when the church unites and prays for Jesus to come, God responds and Jesus comes back and does away with all those forces. Prayer is the most powerful thing, powerful earthly power we see in Revelation. And it's not powerful because there's something special about our prayers. It's powerful because of who we're praying to. And it's powerful because what we're praying. We're praying the will of God. We talked about this last week. Man, I can pray things in Revelation and pray confidently knowing this is what God wants to do, so he's going to answer it. Like I'm asking God to do things that he wants to do. Man, when AJ gets older, he can confidently come and say, Dad, do you want to go hunting today? Do you want to go fishing today? Yes, 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 yes. Every time, AJ, yes, right? For AJ to ask me to do things that I want to do, he's going to get a resounding yes, a resounding yes. And that's what we see in Revelation, if we're praying for things that God wants us wants to do, what can we expect but a resounding yes from him? A resounding yes from him. So we left off there last week, and then I kind of felt, man, we need, to, we need to have some more specific things to tie into. What exactly are we supposed to be praying for? I want to give you this as we close. What, what should we pray for if we're told that these prayers come before God and God answers them? What should we be praying for? Number one, we should be praying for the nations to come to Christ. Why? Because they're supposed to be there. On that day, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, they're there worshiping Jesus. So Jesus isn't coming back until that's for sure going to happen. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We need to pray for the nations to come to Christ. Number two, we need to pray for God to raise up individuals in our church to go. And this one may feel a little scary. Because that means saying goodbye to some people. Right? That means maybe saying goodbye to some of our friends that that are already adults. But for our parents, it may also mean saying goodbye to our children that are growing up right now. What does Luke 10, 2 say? Jesus tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And you have to reach a place of spiritual maturity where you can say, I'm willing to pray for God to raise up people in our church to go, even if that means it's my son or my daughter that goes, that I pray for them to go so that every tribe, nation, and tongue can hear so that Jesus can come back. I mean, you really have to have some real forward thinking 
to see why that's a good thing for your son and daughter to leave, to go share the gospel with people that don't have it, so that those people can be represented in that throne room, so that Jesus can come back, and so we can be in that environment where there's no hunger, no thirst, no sorrow. Human evangelism has to happen for that day to happen. It means somebody's son and daughter has to go. We can pray for people in our church to be raised up to go. Number three, pray for the kingdom of God to come. Matthew 6, 10, the Lord's Prayer. Pray for the kingdom of God to come. Revelation 22, praying for Jesus to come. That's probably not something that we incorporate a ton into our prayer life. I'll put that in my notes. When's the last time we prayed for Jesus to come back outside of maybe this setting? We typically only think about wanting Jesus to come back when things are going bad. When things are going great, it's almost like, Jesus, if you could wait a little bit, that would be fine because things are awesome right now. We typically don't want Jesus to come back when it's bad. We need to get to the point where we want Jesus to come back all the time because everything that's good here pales in comparison to what it looks like when Jesus comes back. Number four, pray for the endurance of the persecuted church. This one's hard because these are people we don't know, but they're a part of our family. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Ephesians 6 verse 19 says, Paul says, pray for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, pray for me in my persecution, in my chains that I would proclaim the gospel boldly to those that have enchained me. Pray for the endurance of the persecuted church. Last verse we'll read, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Paul said, man, we reached a point of discouragement in our persecution. But it drove us to believe more and more in the one who raises us from the dead. We need to pray that for the persecuted church, that those who are enduring persecution would remember they serve the one who raises people from the dead so that even in their death, they find victory. Let's pray for these four things together as we close and leave today. Lord, we come to you this morning and, and, and we just praise you and thank you for the clear things that are found in Revelation 5 through 8. Lord, we're excited to see this unfold because, I mean, we've got a lot of questions that, that we don't know how to answer. How does this happen? When does this happen? Father, I'm so glad and thankful that we can see true things. We can walk away from this clinging to some clear things. Father, we're thankful that that Jesus has been revealed to us in, in enough of his glory that demands that we worship him all the time. We're so thankful for Jesus and his work. The fact that he has come to die on the cross, save us from our sins, that he was perfect when we were far from perfect. That we can now be worthy before you and be clothed in white because Jesus accomplished it for us. 
God, we're thankful that we can be comforted by the fact that you're in control of everything at all time. No evil thwarts your plans. We're grateful and thankful for that truth this morning. We're thankful so much for the value that you've placed on us as your, as your people, as your children. We're thankful for how you spare us from so much and how you guard us and protect us from things that are come yet in the future. Lord, I pray that it would remind us how important it is for us to tell other people about you, that if we truly believe you are worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor, how can we not tell other people about that? How can we not clue other people in on your great plans for humanity? Father, help us to be driven to share even this week with others around us. Lord, we, th- we, we look forward to the day when you come back and the effects of sin being removed. Father, we long for that day. We pray for that day. And Lord, we want to pray even now, realizing that our prayers go before you and that our prayers will be answered, if not in this lifetime, for us, in the lifetime of the saints in the future. God, we pray that you would continue to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Lord, we're thankful for those that are on the mission field even today that are sharing in services around the world with people that have never heard of your name before. Father, I pray that you would draw people to salvation even today, on this day of the Lord, on this this day that we gather to worship. You would draw people from, from tribes and nations and tongues. God, I pray that you would you would raise up individuals from our church that could be a part of that. Lord, we've got plenty of people here that are ready to send. You've blessed us financially to be able to send people. God, I pray that you would raise up individuals that would go. Father, I pray that you would raise up kids that are growing up here at Sovereign Hope to go. I pray that we would give them a clear picture of why missions is so important they would invest their life in the gospel and the advancement of it. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that Jesus would come back, and that all that needs to be accomplished would be accomplished. And Father, we know that a part of that is the the persecuted church and those that are persecuting the church even coming to know you. And so, Father, I pray for those that are enduring persecution today for their faith around the world, those that are being killed for their faith, Father, I pray they'd proclaim boldly the gospel in environments that we will never see to people that we will never know. God, I pray that many of these persecutors would confess the same things as that centurion. Truly, these people were following the Son of God, that it would draw them to repentance of their own sins and draw them to a state of worship towards you. And I pray these things would be accomplished, that that the seals would be broken, the scroll would be unleashed, and that your plans would come to fruition the way that you've designed for them to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.